Welcome back to our Sunday School series in the book of Zechariah. Today we're going to be looking at chapter 10 of Zechariah, specifically verses 1 through 4. And so if you've got your Bible, turn with me to Zechariah 10 verses 1 through 4. We're making good progress getting through Zechariah. We are now in chapter 10. There's 14 chapters, so we are well over the midpoint, and we are on the home stretch. But there is much more that the prophet Zechariah has to teach us here. So let's uh, continue looking at the, these verses. Uh, Zechariah 10, verses 1 through 4. A little bit of a shorter passage today, which might end up being a shorter Sunday school session, but that's okay sometimes. Um, I know listening on a recording isn't quite as engaging as listening in person, so I, I do try to keep them a little bit on the shorter side right now uh, as compared to when we were meeting in person. But um, today might be even a little bit shorter. All right, well, anyway, let's look at chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. I'll read it for us here and then ask the Lord to bless our time together. So starting with verse 1. Ask from Yahweh for rain, and at the time of the spring rains, Yahweh will bring storming thunderbolts. And rain of the showers he will give to them, to each man grass in the field. For the idols speak worthlessness, and the diviners see lies, and dreams of worthlessness they speak, and they comfort with vanity. Therefore the people wander about like sheep, and they are afflicted, for there is no shepherd. Against the shepherds I am exceedingly angry, and against the leaders I will bring judgment, for Yahweh of hosts cares for his flock, that is, the house of Judah, and he has set them as a horse in his splendor for war. And from him is the cornerstone, from him is the tent peg, from him is the bow of war, and from him proceeds every tyrant altogether. Well, this is God's word for us today. Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless our time together as we look at these brief uh, four verses. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. I uh, pray that you would open it to us. You would give us eyes to behold wondrous things from your instruction, we pray, Lord. Um, help us to understand your word and help us to apply it to our lives and be blessed by it. In the holy and precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, if you will remember from last time, we were dealing with Zechariah 9, and in Zechariah 9, we had all kinds of prophecies that were uh, at least partially fulfilled by uh, many of the events surrounding Alexander the Great. And I think it's really fun when you see history tying in with Scripture, and you can see prophetic fulfillment happening on the pages of history. I think that's really cool. And uh, we saw in chapter 9, that as Alexander went through the land of Palestine and conquered various cities, he actually conquered those cities in the order that we see in Zechariah 9. And we have specific references to the fact that God is going to stir up the Jewish people against the Greeks. And that happened, of course, in the Maccabean revolt. And we see Greece even called out by name in verse 13 of chapter 9. And so uh, what we see then at the very end of chapter 9 was that Yahweh... Their God will save his people on that day as the flock of his people. And we're going to see in chapter 10 here this image of God saving his people, being the savior of his people, who are his sheep, his flock, uh, continued and expanded upon here in chapter 10. 
Now, I've broken down our four verses into three sections that we're going to deal with chronologically here. Firstly, we have in verse 1, God as the true shepherd. Secondly, we have in verses 2 and 3, false shepherds, a description of the false shepherds, what they're doing and what that has done to God's people and how they're suffering because of that. And then we have thirdly and finally that God establishes all earthly powers in verse 4. So there's a lot of deep stuff that we want to get into here in just these very small, short verses. And so let's, uh, let's get into it here. Verse 1, ask from Yahweh for rain, and at the time of the spring rains, Yahweh will bring storming thunderbolts. Now you might have in your English translation uh, various uh, words that are put there for this uh, storming thunderbolts. In the Hebrew, it literally means thunderbolts. All right, so here again, like what we saw in chapter 9, we have some Greek imagery going on. We have uh, some polemics with the god Zeus. You'll remember from last week, or just from your Greek mythology class, if you ever had that uh, when you were growing up in school, that Zeus is the god of thunder and lightning in the Greek pantheon. And so Zeus is always you know, sort of pictured as this god who's got thunderbolts and lightning in his hands. And what the uh, uh, Zechariah is doing here, the prophet, is he is borrowing some of that imagery from Zeus, and he is applying that imagery to Yahweh himself to show that Yahweh is greater than any Zeus or any of the Greek gods in the pantheon, for, for that matter. Uh, this is something that is very, very common in the Old Testament. Uh, the prophets love to do this. Um, you, if you read Isaiah, for example, you're going to see a lot of imagery about the Baal, um, it's actually kind of interesting. Uh, up until about the mid-20th century, there was very little known about Baal and the Canaanite gods other than what was in, explicitly in Scripture, and so, which isn't a lot. I mean, they talk about Baal sometimes, but the prophets don't talk about Baal a lot directly. And it wasn't until about the mid-20th century when they found about 1,500 stone and clay tablets in the Middle East that were written in a language called Ugaritic. Uh, which is actually a language that I'm going to be studying next spring, and I'm excited to, to do that. Um, but anyway, these Ugaritic tablets had a lot of information about the Canaanite gods, including Baal. And as scholars began to study these Ugaritic tablets, they found out that there's a lot of language in the Old Testament about Baal, and that language is applied to Yahweh. Now, that's not to say that Yahweh and Baal are the same god or anything, but what it shows is that the prophets had a thorough understanding of the Canaanite gods, and they used imagery from those gods, applied it to Yahweh to show that Yahweh was greater and that he is the true power. If people wanted to apply, for the, say, the concept of fertility to Baal or to apply the idea that Baal would ride on the clouds of heaven— well, then the, the uh, prophets of the Old Testament would say, no, Baal's not the one who rides on the clouds of heaven. God is the one. Yahweh is the one who rides on the clouds of heaven. And so they apply that language to God. And uh, that's not because the prophets weren't creative. It was because they were trying to be polemical. Right? They were trying to make uh, theological arguments here in sort of subtle and clever ways. And it's very cool. You can actually see this if you go back even as far as the Pentateuch to the books that Moses wrote. Um, much of what happens in Exodus uh, with the ten plagues, as well as Moses raising his staff and, and turning um, it into a snake and so on, all of that is polemics against Egypt because Egypt saw serpents and snakes as symbols of divinity. They saw the staff 
as bearing divine power. And so God, in his wisdom, used uh, some of the Egyptian imagery in his uh, leading of the people out of, his, or out of Egypt in order to show his own power, to say, no, it's not the Egyptian staffs or rods that have power. It's the staff of Moses that has power as he raises it over the Red Sea and it parts, showing that God is the true God and not the Egyptian God. So there's actually many books written on this subject, and I think it's really, really fascinating. But long story short here, we have another example in verse 1 of chapter 10 here in Zechariah of polemics against the Greek gods. And here we're being told that God has, is the one who holds thunderbolts. He's the one who is the true Zeus, if you will. He's got the power of Zeus. Zeus is nothing. Yahweh is everything. And, uh, and that's important because if you look at verse 1, what's being described here is that if the people of Israel want rain, that is, if they want to seek blessing from God and they ask blessing, guess what? God is able not only to give them what they ask, but to give them more than they ask. If they ask for rain, guess what God's going to bring? He's going to bring thunder and lightning and massive storms. He's going to bring so much rain, they won't know what to do with it all. It's like, you want rain? All right, well, I'll give you thunder. You know, he's, he's going to bring it. He's going to bring them more than they could ever ask for because God is their source of blessing. God is their source of blessing. And notice in the next line here, the second part of verse 1, that he will give to them to each man grass in the field. So you have this idea of water and grass. That's the blessings that God is going to give to his people if they will but ask. And that's important because who needs water and grass? Well, it's going to be the flocks, right? It's going to be the sheep. And that's because God's people in these verses are being compared to flocks and sheep. We'll see that more explicitly in the next couple of verses, particularly verse 3. But all that flocks need, all that sheep need, is grass and water, right? And so what God is saying here is he's going to give all of the blessing that his people needs if it is within his will and if they will but ask. All right, so this is describing God as the great shepherd, if you will, the great provider for the sheep. Now, we're not told explicitly that God is the shepherd, You have to turn to Psalm 23 to find that out, that God is the good shepherd. But here, implicitly, this teaching of God as the great shepherd, the one who provides for the sheep, leading them to the grass that they need for their food, leading them to the water that they need for their drink. This is God. This is our God, the one who provides for us, the one who gives us everything that we need. And we see that taught everywhere in Scripture, but particularly we see that here in this verse Today, All right, so that is our first section, God as the true shepherd in verse 1. Now, moving on to the second section, we have now false shepherds. Uh, God is sometimes, uh, f- sometimes finds himself in a, in a competition with false shepherds. And uh, not to say that God is ever going to lose that competition. Ultimately, God always wins every competition because he's God. Uh, but there are false shepherds that try to compete for the loyalty of the sheep. And here in verse 2, we have a brief discussion, and in verse 3 too, of false shepherds and what they're trying to do. So look at verse 2. For idols speak wickedness, and diviners see lies, and dreams of worthlessness they speak, and they comfort 
with vanity. All right, so there are four distinct things that we're told about these false shepherds. And they're called shepherds in verse 3, just to be clear on that. So these false shepherds are doing these things. First of all, they're idols that speak wickedness. They're diviners that see lies. The whole point of a diviner or someone who practices divination in the Old Testament is it's someone who is able to, to sort of get the word of the gods and deliver it to the king. For example, you see these kind of people in Babylon when King Nebuchadnezzar has his dream and he's wanting all of the diviners in the kingdom to come and tell him what his dream is and what the meaning of it is. The whole point of a diviner is that they're supposed to see what's going to happen or they're supposed to see the meaning behind some kind of cryptic dream or hallucination. But here, Israel's shepherds, these false bad shepherds that are trying to get a hold of them, are seeing lies. That is, they're not doing their job. They have big promises. They say they can do things. They say they can provide meaning. They say they can see what needs to be done. They claim that they can see the truth. But in all honesty, all that these diviners are doing is they are seeing lies. They speak dreams of worthlessness. Dreams aren't supposed to be worthless. In the ancient world, dreams were supposed to be uh, messages from the gods. And we see that, of course, throughout the Old Testament. This is one of the main ways that God communicates, particularly with the patriarchs, is he gives them dreams that have specific meanings. You think of Joseph and his dreams, right? Uh, The dreams that he had of all of his, his brothers and his family bowing down to him. Dreams are supposed to provide answers, but here they speak dreams that are worthless. These dreams have no answers. They are dreams of worthlessness. And finally here we have they comfort with vanity. They comfort with vanity. That is, they don't comfort with the truth. You know, if you comfort someone by telling them lies, you know, that may have a very short uh, beneficial result. They may feel better for a short time, but as soon as they figure out that you've comforted them with lies, you've comforted them with something that's not true, well, then they're not going to be very comforted after that. In fact, you get, that's a breakdown of a relationship right there. That's going to cause a lot of trouble. And so here we're told that these bad shepherds are comforting with vanity. Now, just sort of looking at this from a big picture perspective, we're not told in this passage who these bad shepherds are specifically. I mean, we're not told who these cultural influences are on the people of Israel that God has in mind here, these bad leaders or these, these bad uh, societal influences. We don't know who these are, okay? But we know that no matter when God's people are alive on this planet, there are always bad shepherds, right? There are always people that are trying to usurp the guidance of God in order to, uh, um, to somehow to trick you in order to make you follow them. In every generation of God's people on this planet, there are always going to be massive influences that try to redirect God's people away from the good shepherd to then follow a bad shepherd. And this has been no exception in the last couple of centuries. Our, our, our uh, American churches have not been an exception to the kinds of things that are being described here in Zechariah 10 verse 2. Now, one of the things that I've been blessed to do this summer has been to take a, a course from RTS Global on American Presbyterianism. And it's been absolutely fascinating 
to, to take this course. I think it's been one of my favorite courses uh, that I've done at RTS because uh, it's just been so fascinating to see uh, how Presbyterianism has advanced and declined and advanced and declined and made mistakes and made progress and so on within the American context. It's been really fun. Uh, but as I've been studying that course, I see a lot of parallels between what was going on just in the, the American church in general in the last couple hundred years and what Zechariah is describing here in chapter 2. Because you see, at the beginning of the, I mean, really you could say probably the beginning of the 19th century, so we're talking in the 1800s, you have what historians often call the rise of secular thought. The rise of secular thought. And what was going on in this period was that you have suddenly all of these great thinkers, particularly they were uh, German thinkers in the universities over in Germany, and they were uh, beginning to question the integrity of Scripture, and they were beginning to question the beliefs of Orthodox Christianity. You had major names beginning to show up in this rise of secular thought, like a guy by the name of Immanuel Kant, who taught basically that all of religion should basically be reduced to ethics and morality. That is, the only purpose of religion is to show you how you're supposed to live. Uh, it, 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 we really can't know for sure if God exists, uh, but we need to assume that he exists, because if we don't, then people will behave poorly and there won't be a basis for morality. So you can see what Kant's getting at there. He's saying we just need to pretend that God exists. We don't know for sure if he's there, but we need to at least assume he's there. Otherwise, people are going to be acting up. They won't uh, be submissive to authority, and they won't obey laws, and we'll just have all kinds of trouble. And that was Kant's idea. Then you had another guy who came along named Schleiermacher, and he was a guy who said that all of religion is basically reduced to feelings and emotions that that's what religion is all about. It's all about a kind of subjective experience. We don't need to worry about whether Jesus was a real person. We don't need to worry about whether the Bible is historically accurate or theologically accurate. No, we just need to make sure that the Bible helps us achieve some kind of subjective experience that shows us our dependence on the divine. Uh, you can see there's some very interesting ideas coming about here. These might be sounding somewhat familiar to you if you're familiar with uh, liberal theological thought. And a lot of Christians have moved in this direction. You had other people that showed up on this, this stream of rising secular thought, like Julius Wellhausen, who was another uh, important Old Testament critic who was one of the first people to suggest that Moses didn't write the Pentateuch. And he had all these scholarly theories about how the Pentateuch came together through a whole bunch of different authors, and he had a, a, a hypothesis that was all uh, important and so on. So Wellhausen began to question the authors of Scripture. And then you had another guy came along named David Strauss. And Strauss argued that particularly the Gospels in the New Testament, all four Gospels, are not books that record history, but rather they're books that record myth. They're books that show us spiritual truths, but we don't really need to take the history seriously in the Gospels. So whether Jesus really lived or not is not important. Whether he really did the things that the gospel tell us, that's not important. Uh, what matters is that we get the spiritual truths that are being taught in the gospels. 
And I'm sure a lot of this may sound familiar to you if you're familiar at all with what the world says about Christianity. This is the rise of secular thought, the rise of what we might call these bad shepherds in our own day. People who are trying to lead us away from the true God and are sort of creating a God after their own image and are holding him up, hoping that we will follow it. And so with the rise of secular thought, we have then the rise of secular answers for happiness and safety. Because if we're going to do away with Orthodox Christianity and we're going to do away with the gospel because we don't really need that, now we can come up with our own answers for what life is all about. We can come up with the, our own ideas for where uh, all people should go, where they should be directing their energy and, and what they should be pursuing and what the ultimate goal of their life should be and how to fix the problems of this world. If you throw out the gospel, if you throw out Orthodox Christianity... Now you have to try to come up with your own answers to those questions. There's been lots of answers. These bad shepherds have been putting out all kinds of answers that they think will solve the world's problems. Just to give you some examples, think about it. Uh, Some people say that the real problem with humanity is education, or really lack thereof. Uh, The problem with humanity is that we just need to educate everybody. As long as we give everyone the right information, as long as we teach them how to do their jobs in this planet and how to not uh, do anything politically incorrect, as long as we can just sort of um, reprogram the populace so that they will respond predictably to propaganda, well then that's the answer. We can educate everybody and make them all perfect that way. There's a lot of people who put this forward as, as the great uh, answer to humanity's problem is lack of education. Now, of course, education is important. Uh, I, of course, think education is important. I'm in graduate school, and I'm going to be going on, in, uh, Lord willing, doing a PhD after I'm done at RTS. So I'm certainly a fan of education, and I see the importance of it. But education is not the answer to the world's problems. All right? That's a lie of a bad shepherd. Another option that people throw out there, uh, that these bad shepherds might throw out in our own day uh, to solve the world's problems is they'll say, well, here's what we need. We need toleration. As long as everyone can just be tolerant of everybody else, then we'll be fine. You religious people, we don't care what you believe in the private corners of your closet, but don't bring your faith into the public square. Don't try to say that I'm wrong and that you're right. Just be tolerant. And what's so, what's so odd about this idea, though, is that you know, the, the people that preach tolerance are incredibly intolerant of people who refuse to be tolerant. <laughs> it's very, very quite confusing. Uh, they scream toleration, but if you object, they suddenly become very intolerant of you for being intolerant of toleration. <laughs> so it's uh, quite, quite the opposite of what they think it should happen. But anyway... Uh, Some people say toleration. That's the great answer. And that's probably one of the biggest ones today that we're seeing right now. Perhaps uh, some other bad shepherds might say that the answer to humanity's problems is we just need to to focus on equality. Everybody's equal. Uh, Maybe we need to focus on uh, ending all religions. I've heard this one before. Humanity's biggest problem is religion. We need to end religion and have everyone have no religion. Uh, That's not even possible, actually, because everyone has a religion. Even atheism is a religion to one extent or another. But you can see, we've got all kinds of bad shepherds today, just like the people of Israel had. We have people 
that are trying to give us answers to life, trying to give us answers to all of the complex issues that we deal with as human beings. And you know what these bad shepherds are today who scream education and toleration and ending religion and all this business? They are idols who speak wickedness. They are diviners who see lies. They are speakers of worthlessness, and they comfort with vanity. We've got a lot of bad shepherds today, and we need to keep our eyes on the good shepherd, the good shepherd who is our God. Now look at verse 3 with me here. This is what God thinks about these bad shepherds. He says, against the shepherds, I am angry, and I will punish the leaders. Now that word for leaders that you're seeing there in English uh, could also be translated as the he-goats or the male goats. In fact, that is the Hebrew word, but metaphorically sometimes it means leaders, and so you might see that in your English. Uh, But you can see, Zechariah is trying to keep this this metaphor, this uh, analogy of flocks and herds and sheep going on. So you've got God's people who are the sheep, and then you've got these bad shepherds who are now being treated like goats. And they, God says he's going to bring punishment on them. And then he says, but Yahweh of hosts will care for his flock, namely the house of Judah. So God is going to care for his people. Now, one of the things that I think is very interesting, if you were to look at the Hebrew of verse 3, is that that word for punish, when God says he will bring punishment on the leaders, and that word for care, when he says Yahweh of hosts will care for his flock, those two words, punish and care, in the Hebrew are the exact same word. And uh, it just has two different meanings because of the grammar and because of the content. So on the one hand, it means punish, and is in the first part of verse 3. In the other part of verse 3, it means to care for. And I think it's quite fascinating because what it shows is that God is equally interested in bringing judgment on the wicked and in bringing care and blessing to his own people. And he does it by his power. So it shows that God is equally involved in both of those things. Uh, We don't want to overemphasize God's blessings and his grace so much so that we forget about his justice, but yet we also don't want to overemphasize his justice so much that we forget about his grace. And here Zechariah actually uses the exact same word for punishment and for care. And I think it's just... Uh, Sort of a a really interesting syntactical thing. But anyway, continuing with verse 3. Actually, no, jump up to the end of verse 2 for a second. After it says uh, that they comfort with vanity, notice what the result is. There's a result of what happens when these bad shepherds are allowed to do what they're doing. Therefore, the people wander like sheep, and they are afflicted, for there is no shepherd. Now, what Zechariah has in mind there is not that there's literally no shepherd, because we've already seen the bad shepherds are the ones that are trying to guide the people. What he's saying is that there's no true shepherd. In other words, God wants to be the one who guides his people to the grass and to the water, to bring them sustenance, to bless them, to provide for them, but at the moment, the people, at least by and large, as a general populace, are not following God as their shepherd. Rather, they seem to be more interested in following these bad shepherds. And in following these bad shepherds, they're not guided 
to God's blessings. Rather, they wander like a flock and they are afflicted. This is precisely what happens when God's people do not direct themselves toward God and follow him as their good shepherd. We need to be on guard about this, that we're not following the bad shepherds of the world, like what we've already talked about. Now, verse 4 then, as we keep working our way through this passage, we're almost at the end here. Verse 4, we get to the third section of our text for today, and that is that God establishes all powers. So on in the one hand, we have in verse 1 that God is the true shepherd. He's the one who's going to bring a blessing for his people if his people will turn to him. Then in verses 2 and 3, we have a description of the false shepherds and the bad stuff that happens when God's people follow the false shepherds. And then we get to the, the third and final section where God is going to say, Hey, listen, this is why you need to follow me. Look at what I am for you. Verse 4. From him, that is from God, is the cornerstone. From him is the tent peg. From him is the bow of war. And from him proceeds every tyrant all together. Now there's a lot of stuff packed into this one verse, but let me just break this down quickly and carefully because we're already, wow, a half an hour into this lesson. I expected it to be shorter with only four verses, but I guess not. God's word is just too rich. Um, First of all, God says that he is the cornerstone. And I'm sure you're familiar with this cornerstone idea as as, uh, the word cornerstone shows up a lot in the Old Testament. The cornerstone is the stone that was used when builders would be putting together some kind of structure in the ancient world. And the cornerstone was the stone used to create that perfect perpendicular line at the corner of the building. If your cornerstone was off, then you wouldn't have a straight building. Your building would be crooked. And so the idea of the cornerstone is that he is the foundation. And of course, Christ is called the cornerstone, right? And so Christ is the foundation of the church and so on. But here we have God being called the cornerstone. And what does that mean? He is the foundation of the house of Judah. That is, he's the foundation of his covenant people. And secondly, we have that he is the tent peg. And that can seem kind of random, like what, God is a tent peg? Uh, <laughs> that almost seems a little bit irreverent, but not, uh, not for Zechariah. Remember, the tent pegs are the very important pieces of either wood or stone or metal or something that hold down the, the ropes and the fabric necessary for the structure of a tent. And so lest his readers are unfamiliar with the idea of a cornerstone, Zechariah says, well, here, here's another analogy. God is your tent peg. He's the one that holds your tent together. He's the one who holds the whole structure of your tent together. Uh, maybe this has uh, some, sort of some um, vague reference to the tabernacle, perhaps, which was a tent. Uh, and, of course, God's house before Solomon built the first temple. But uh, in any case, you get the point. God is the cornerstone and the tent peg. He's the foundation and he's that thing that holds all of his people together. And then thirdly, we have God as the bow of war. And what that means is that God is the great one who rules over all wars. There's no war that happens without God's, at least God's permission, and certainly God's ordination. No war ever happens without God's sovereignty over it at all times. God has the bow of war in his hands. Nothing happens outside 
of his power. And this is probably referring back to the Babylonians when they came and uh, took over Israel and brought everyone into exile. So uh, this is just another reminder of God's sovereignty. Why should Israel turn to God as their shepherd instead of all the bad shepherds? Well, here's a good reason. God is sovereign over everything that happens in the world. And then finally, we have here from him, that is from God, proceeds every tyrant altogether. And if this doesn't tell you that God is sovereign, I don't know what will, because uh, every ruler in the ancient world, particularly among the Persians and the Babylonians and the Egyptians, and just generally speaking, all the people in the Middle East, they had this idea that kings were sort of semi-divine, and that kings received their sort of semi-divine power from the particular gods of that kingdom. So the king of Babylon is going to receive his supernatural power and, and, and position and authority from the gods of Babylon. And likewise, the Egyptian pharaoh is going to receive divine supernatural power from the Egyptian gods and so on and so forth for each nation. And here, we're being told by Zechariah, no, no, it's not the Egyptian gods that give Pharaoh his power. It is not the Babylonian gods that give the king of Babylon his power. It's not the Persian gods that give the king of Persia his power. It is Yahweh. From him proceeds every ruler, every tyrant. Uh, you might notice in your English that it often translated, translates the word there as ruler or leader or something like that. Uh, the Hebrew word is literally tyrant, and it's just highlighting the negative connotation of this ruler. He's not a good ruler. He's a bad ruler. So even bad rulers are ordained by God, is what Zechariah is saying here. From God proceeds every bad ruler altogether. Not to say that God is responsible for the evil that that bad ruler accomplishes. Um, that's a subject for another day as well. But uh, it does mean that from God from his sovereign ordaining power, all evil authorities proceed as well because he is sovereign over everything in this earth. All right, so just kind of bringing all of this in to the end here, what do we learn from this passage? Well, here's what I want to give you very quickly as we finish up here. What we learn is this. God is our good shepherd, not anybody else. We need to turn from the bad shepherds, whomever they may be in this world. And we gave lots of examples earlier. And we need to turn to God as the true shepherd who will bring us our blessing and everything that we need in this life to survive. He brings us our grass. He brings us our daily bread, if you will. He brings us the waters of life that we need. And God is able to do this. And this is Zechariah's point here in verse 4. God is able to accomplish what he does in verse 1 because of the great truth of verse 4. God can provide for his people because he is sovereign over everything. You see, only God is our sovereign provider. And if we turn to other shepherds, if we turn to government, and we think government is going to be our provider... If we turn to our family and we think our family is going to be our provider, if we turn to our spouse and think our spouse is going to be our great provider, I mean, all of these things are wonderful, but they cannot take the place of God. Nothing can take the place of God. 
And in our own day, when we have much unrest, much craziness going on in the world, let's not look to any other shepherd but the good shepherd. Because when we need rain, let's ask God and not anybody else. Because it's only God, the sovereign one, who is able to give us what we need and to provide all the protection and the provision that we will ever need as his people. All right, we'll continue with chapter 10 next week, but let's close in prayer as we finish up. Our Father and our God, we thank you for Zechariah. We thank you for this great message that we have received from you today. Um, We thank you for your word, and we pray that you would comfort us in these troublesome times as we uh, seek your will, as we seek to glorify you, as we look to turn to you, our good shepherd, and away from all of the false bad shepherds that are out there trying to desperately uh, achieve our allegiance. And Lord, we pray that you would work in us a strong and faithful allegiance to you and to you alone. In the holy and precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.